The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to the Monday edition of Squawk Box with Karen Cho, myself Steve Sedgwick and these are your headlines. Wall Street eking out its sixth straight week of gains as U.S. job growth continues apace, with the economy adding almost 200,000 rolls in November. That is ahead of the Fed's final meeting of the year this week. Deflation dynamics in China, with uh, consumer prices falling at their fastest pace in three years in November, whilst producer prices sank for the 14th straight month. EU finance ministers face up to an extraordinary meeting the week before Christmas after failing to strike a deal on reforming the bloc's debt and deficit rules. We'll be speaking to the Spanish finance minister and the newly announced EIB president Nadia Calvino at 9.30 CET in a first on CNBC. European lawmakers announced new rules governing the use of artificial intelligence in what's likely to become the West's first major regulation of the emerging technology. And Rakuten joins the global AI race, promising its own large language model. The CEO, Miki Mikitani, telling CNBC the company is placed to succeed. The data set we have is very unique. Nobody has that like data. We are number one e-commerce company, number one travel agent, number one credit card company, number one bank. Now we have mobile business. Nobody has a data set like we do. Plenty for markets to digest uh, going into the final stretch last week. Are the non-farm payrolls coming through hotter than the market had anticipated? I mean, these numbers, 199,000 on the headline versus 180,000 the market had anticipated, but also a step up from 150,000 the month prior. The numbers, again, don't forget we had a whole string of jobs numbers crossing over the week. Some of it coming in a little bit tamer. This uh, number, it was at the hotter end of some of those expectations. And in particular, that unemployment rate going down instead of staying steady or perhaps even nudging up at this point in the cycle. I think investors just taking stock. We had that extra caveat that look at striking workers potentially coming back into the mix. That could pose some upside risk to the numbers. What do we have in the context? Well, the market's still positive and that was interesting. We had uh, regrouping over the course of last week. Investors just a little bit more cautious around pushing stocks higher and uh, we really t- tipped across the line with uh, some modest upbeat action as you can see. The S&P 5 500, the highest level we've seen since March last year. So again, at this peak level, we had a very strong run for November and just topping up as we head into the final stretch of Christmas, another four tenths of a percent. In terms of sectors in play, energy bounced back Friday session, which is why you saw a decent lift for the Dow as well, up more than 1% on energy names, but left behind somewhat consumer staples. They were the areas that the market left behind. Over the course of the week, though, slightly different picture. We're talking about technology last week, the AI story back in focus, big tech names uh, very much propelling the Nasdaq higher. And in fact, we had weekly gains across on the Nasdaq. And uh, you can see six positive week in a row for the Nasdaq, 17% the size of the gains for the trading week, thanks to a slight pop in that Friday session. I want to take you to what we're seeing on Treasuries as a result, because the market's now saying, look, March 
in terms of a rate cut are likely to happen now by the Fed, but May is still a 76% chance. And if you look at positioning, we did lift slightly on some of these yields. Uh, we were about uh, 410 on the uh, 10 year in that Friday session, now about four and a quarter. And you can see uh, we are 4.74 at the short end, the two year. I want to take you to the dollar as a result and what that's meant. Uh, this morning we've got cable on the back foot, 125.40. Euro though climbing, 107.66. A lot of focus on meetings on this side of the world this week. The European Central Bank, Bank of England, Norges Bank, uh, Swiss National Bank, all meeting Thursday. Norway as well considered to be the one that could be a potential hiker. So watching a lot of the European trades this week. Dollar yen rates, so we are seeing a little bit more appetite to the upside here after a lot of mileage for the yen last week on uh, potential for the Bank of Japan to do something this month or next month. Dollar yuan also firmer. To US futures, and this is the early pictures we get set up for the US markets later on. You can see it's a little bit patchy, not a huge amount of appetite, bit of green on the Dow at this stage, but a bit of red on the Nasdaq. Steve? I am very excited, Bian. Well, I'll tell you why. Well, you know why, because you've seen the guest. Well, we'll come to him in a few moments' time. Uh, safe to say, November's non-farm payrolls print came in slightly higher than expected at 199,000 versus 190,000 forecasts and significantly higher than October. Okay, that's more than October, ladies and gentlemen. So the jobs picture tightening. Yeah, unemployment employment rate. It dipped. Okay, it didn't go up. It dipped. Whilst average hourly earnings saw their joint highest monthly uptick of the year. Okay, so the average hourly earnings went up, the unemployment rate went down, and the headline random number uh, was better than expected. Just so you all know that, okay, because you all want your rate hikes, uh, rate cuts, I beg your pardon. Uh, the data underlines trader expectations the Fed will hold ratings at this week's meeting. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs has brought its Fed cut forecast forward by three months to the third quarter of next year. The bank says the move doesn't reflect any major change in its thinking. Let's get to uh, one of the reasons why we're starting the week off with a bang, and that's David Newhouser, who joins us. He's the CIO at Livermore Partners. David, the data is extraordinary. And, and Karen mentioned, you know, obviously, we've got the, the, the uh, Fed this week. We've got producer prices, consumer prices, retail sales. It's a great week for data geeks. The problem for all of us data geeks out there, and I put all of us in that bracket because I think we enjoy looking at all this, is that the market seems to be extrapolating what it wants from the data without perhaps looking at all the data in the round and going, actually, the US economy looks rather robust. Or, or does it on a, on, a, on a personal front? Because I know that you, you've got a very nuanced view of, of, of a lot of what we're seeing. Yeah, so it's very interesting, as you said, Steve, because when you look at the economy, there's really like two economies, in, at least in the US and even the world. Uh, you have on one end, you have um, the, the high-end consumer who, of course, has built tremendous wealth and has strong income still and has since COVID. Uh, and then at the, at the lower end, of course, you have a, a number of people that are suffering at this point due to high inflation, due to cost of living and, and such. So you really have a, a bit of two economies here. And when you see the data, it actually expe- you know, explains that too, where on the retail front, uh, dollar stores, other things, you're starting to see that those sales are weakening. But on the luxury side, um, for, depending on, of course, the brand, you're also still seeing that there's a number of companies that are doing quite well. And I think a lot of that has to be that when you look at the higher end, you're talking about people that own assets, that have high levels of income and high levels of savings. And obviously they could be investing in the short end of the curve at 5% and see some really strong income. We're at the lower end, those tend to be people that don't have assets, that are living paycheck to paycheck, 
and are dealing with high inflation and, and costs. So it's, it's really a tale of two And, and that is unbelievably tough to watch as well, as, as, because we haven't even seen the full ramifications of, of the mortgage rate increases due to the fixed nature of most people's mm-hmm. um, uh, debt on that front as well. So it can only get worse on that front as people have to roll up to higher rates as well. Is the stock market extrapolating the right information from the data as far as you can see at the moment. The, the S&P on the screen there, right where my pen is, if I go the right way, my pen, there you go, that's right, there we go, got it the right way. Uh, 46.04, that figure there. Um, that is the highest level, now the team and I were going over this, I think the highest level since, was it March 2022? Is the market right to extrapolate that actually this is what we're seeing in the round is good for the stock market? You know, they are in terms of you're seeing strong data and obviously that's feeding into corporate earnings, that's feeding into the market and to valuation. And of course, the market is always forward looking, uh, looking at discounting the forward nature of obviously what the Federal Reserve is going to do. So at this point, you know, it's, it's trying to have this Goldilocks scenario, as we know. And the outlook, of course, was that, um, you know, the Fed's going to look to be cutting rates because they see a soft landing approaching. Um, and, and it looks like on the surface it is. I mean, you see the numbers that you just described in terms of Friday's job report. You see inflation uh, slowing over the last uh, number of uh, uh, months. But at the same time, uh, you know, underneath the surface, you're seeing a lot of cracks. I mean, you're seeing cracks in terms of the consumer. You're seeing cracks in terms of the global economy with China, uh, with other inflation numbers around the world. So it, it looks like the U.S. is the best spot to be in. And I think today that's true, um, except I think it's that forward path as are we going to see things start to fall off a cliff or are we going to sort of glide path down and corporate earnings are going to be sheltered from the storm. That's the thing I think people don't have a really good understanding of today, uh, but they're believing that that's going to happen. That's the narrative. David, as you talk about cracks, then where does this leave the oil position? Because we know that last week energy was again a move to the south, 3.8% coming off WTI Brent. I can see you're still positioned in some small energy cap stocks. Is that the right positioning given that the market is now concerned around the demand story impacting oil? Well, it's a tough positioning. You know, I think first, small caps have greatly underperformed um, large cap, mega cap, like you said. 2023 was all about the mega cap, the mag seven, right? And those are the biggest companies in the world. Some have the strongest balance sheets in the world. There's obviously a viewpoint on AI and and the growth there and the dynamics there around earnings and what potentially could be for um, companies going forward. Um, But at the same time, you know, what's the market telling you? I mean, we're talking about strong numbers on Friday and there's a soft landing and the U.S. is great, but then, you know, when you look at the oil market and you look at the gold market, two areas that Livermore is invested in, I mean, oil down around 70 WTI and gold at $2,000 an ounce is telling a whole different story. You know, central banks are increasing their gold reserves, you know, 100 metric tons. Um, you know, there's something going on there. I think a lot of it has to do when you look at government spend over the last several uh, years as well. You know, we've had seven trillion of QE in the markets for a number of years. We have jet to, uh, debt to GDP for the U.S. economy at over 120 percent. You know, China's is off the charts as well. So there's like these, these totally different, different dynamics going on. And then you have China slowing. So when you look at the oil, like I said, and you look at the gold market, that's telling you recession is in the front. But when you, you know, read the tea leaves in terms of uh, what analysts are saying, economists are saying as far as the U.S. economy, 
that the soft landing is approaching. And that's what actually the 10 years telling you. I, there's somebody has it wrong here is what I'm yeah. trying to tell you. Yeah. Somebody has it wrong. Um, it's hard to describe who has it yet. Um, so I'm just really waiting and seeing and trying to, you know, decipher what's the right path to take. Right. David, through your notes, I can see there is a vein of being tactical too around the positioning. And on gold prices, uh, I've heard recently some of the fund managers have closed out positions because of the record high we've had in the past week. Is there a point of being tactical, even if you think that the whole printing of money, the excess out there, the detachment away from the fiat money, pivoting gold back in focus, even with the, the yield story coming off a little bit too. Doesn't that mean though there's a tactical trade around gold because we have escalated so quickly? I do. I mean, I think the question is, will sort of the, the 2000 be support level or will it again uh, prove that it'll be, you know, gold will pull back into the, into the high teens again? Um, you know, I think a lot will depend again on central bank appetite in 2024. If we continue to see this uh, buying aggressively by central banks around the world because it's such a low percentage of the reserves compared to, to what it typically is. I think it's something around 20% of the reserves when typically in past years it's always been up around 40%. So that's, that's something you have to take notice. Um, the oil market, of course, I think is really important. Um, you've seen OPEC Plus cut back in terms of supply. Uh, they obviously are looking at further cuts in 2024, but the market today is really just uh, not believing them. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there is more supply coming out of the U.S. in terms of the privates and not the publics. But you know, we like some of these small cap names simply because um, when you're talking about oil and you look at companies that are disciplined, returning free cash flow and have a lot of opportunities to see consolidation, uh, which is one of Livermore's themes. We're going to see much more consolidation in the markets overall, whether it be in the oil patch or, or other areas of the, of the um, sectors. So there's a lot to, to look at going forward. Um, but I still think oil and there's a stagflationary play is here to stay. David, we love listening to you, but we've only got time for one more question. So I'm going to ask you a very generic question is what is the biggest risk to risk on in 2024 as you can see it? Well, the biggest risk, uh, biggest issue or, or risk to risk on is the fact that the Fed does not do what the market is, is telling it that it's going to do, which is slash interest rates over the course of 2024. So, so hang on, the biggest risk for 2024 is the Fed does what it says it's doing now. Because it's basically been consistent that we're, we're not slashing. Exactly. So the market's telling you one okay. thing. So what the market's doing essentially is calling out the Fed's credibility. Again. Yes. And we'll see who's right here. That's the thing. There's two different dynamics at play. Uh, what the market's telling you and what Federal uh, you know, Reserve Chairman Powell is telling you, let's see who has the credibility this time. The old don't fight the Fed. Let's see uh, whether that works but this that's time. It's a great battle, isn't it? Because it's one all at the moment in, in, in soccer parlance, which is what we call football, because the Fed was wrong on transitory. So, you know, the market won on that one. But then the Fed's been right about staying the course and going higher for longer. So it's kind of one all where, where you know, we've got another 20 minutes to play in this game, haven't we, in this cycle? I don't know. Yeah, the plateau part. We've got to play the plateau. And David, thanks so much for stopping by. Nice to see you in person instead of down the line this time and yeah. Uh, yeah. enjoy and the festivities Merry in London. Christmas, happy holidays, happy holidays whatever holidays, we want exactly. to say. Yeah, yeah happy holidays. Yeah. David Newhouse with us, the CEO at Livermore Partners. And let's push on to what we're seeing on the show later on today. Plenty coming up. China falls deeper into deflation, adding to a series of economic challenges facing Beijing. We'll discuss next. 
Plus, Rakuten CEO Miki Mikatani talks exclusively to CNBC about the company's latest deal in Germany, as well as its broader telco operations and developments in AI. We'll bring you that interview throughout the morning. And we'll be speaking to the incoming president of the European Investment Bank, Nadia Calvino. She joins us here on the desk at 9.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. All right, good to see you. Let's take a look at these Asian indices. And we're talking about Chinese inflation or deflation in a few moments' time. The Nikkei uh, merrily moving higher, 1.5% up. The Hang Seng down 1.4%. And flat markets elsewhere. Karen's homeland trading up four points. And uh, no, that's not Mayfair, that's uh, Australia. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Shanghai Composite up 0.8%. Mayfair Fair slash Notting Hill index these days. Mayfair slope, Notting Hill slope, uh, stroke Brisbane or Melbourne. Well, I can't remember you. Which one is it? was Brisbane originally. Brisbane. Sorry, I almost right. Okay, let's move on. China's consumer prices fell. I'm assuming you're laughing. China's consumer prices fell at their fastest pace in three years in November, whilst producer prices declined for the 14th month in a row. Let's get some superb analysis now. Lin Lin joins us for the first time this week. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? And it's good to see you, Steve. And we're talking about inflation data today. It's basically reflective, I think, of what we saw in terms of the import data on the trade side last week. Certainly suggests, Steve, that in terms of domestic demand, uh, that recovery remains weak and is struggling. On the CPI side, that is down 0.5 of a percent, both on a month-to-month and on a year-to-year basis, and more than what the market was expecting. Food was the biggest culprit here. It was down 4%. And pork, which is a uh, national favourite in China, that was a big drag. It was down uh, more than 31% uh, its prices in November. Suggestive one of ample supply, but also that uh, this expectation of a rebound in terms of pork consumption just simply hasn't been there in recent months. On the producer price index side, we saw a fall of 3% on a year-to-year basis. A lot of that can be put down to uh, falls in terms of global energy prices in the month of November. Now, in terms of the market reaction, earlier in the session, we saw quite a lot of losses playing through, but that has really been pared back, and we're seeing actually a lot of green flowing through after the lunch break. We've got the CSI 300 benchmark, which, of course, has all of the blue chips. It's basically now flat to the upside at 3,400. And one. But uh, we have seen when we look at a lot of those uh, indices related to the consumer and industrials, they've been mostly down. The hardest hit are liquor stocks uh, today. Uh, the famous, of course, the Chinese Baijiu. You've got the famous uh, Wu Liangye, a major player in this space. Uh, it is currently down about 2.5%. And another major player, Lao Jiao, uh, that's uh, down 42 
2%. Now, of course, this data certainly reinforcing calls from the market investors, analysts for more policy support. And we got uh, from the Politburo meeting, which is a meeting of the 24 top leaders. It's chaired by President Xi himself. We got some overarching clues, uh, perhaps, in terms of what that policy support could look like going into 2024. It was certainly a signals in terms of pro-growth. Uh, we've got a new turn of phrase here, which is uh, that uh, they want uh, uh, stability through growth. And you've got some economists saying that uh, it's a sign that uh, you've got central government saying that these two concepts are not mutually exclusive and that they want more growth going forward. In terms of fiscal policy, a focus on it being proactive, but of appropriate intensity. Some economists uh, that have been on CNBC earlier today saying that that means that there will be more fiscal stimulus coming, but nothing in terms of sort of major stimulus, for example, handouts to households are coming up in the woodworks. Now, uh, that is, of course, just the overarching picture here. But later this month, we will get, of course, the Central Economic Work Conference, and that will give us perhaps more uh, of the meat on the bone in terms of what that policy setting will look like going forward and perhaps some clues about what the growth rate will be in 2024. Back to you guys in London. Lynn, thank you very much for the update. Germany's governing council parties failed, coalition parties failed to once again strike a deal on next year's budget during talks Sunday evening, with negotiations expected to resume today. The German government is scrambling to fill the budget hole caused by last month's constitutional court ruling, which barred it from circumventing the debt break by using unused pandemic relief funds elsewhere. EU finance ministers have failed to reach a deal on reforming the bloc's national spending rules. Germany is pushing for stricter limits, while France and Italy are calling for more flexibility. Ministers are set to meet again next week, with France's Bruno Le Maire optimistic that an agreement would be reached before the end of the year, saying 95% of the text is sorted. Well, Sylvia joins us with more fresh from Brussels. So, Sylvia, it was interesting to see that Bruno Le Maire effectively threw the Spanish a bone to around their presidency and their holding or hosting of the discussions. Others were not so confident that there was going to be an outcome. So it was very interesting because the ministers were sounding quite positive before the meeting. But then ultimately, as we know, in the end, there was no compromise for the time being when it comes to reforming the fiscal rules. We did hear from uh, the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, saying that 95% of this deal is sorted. But when I asked the same question to the German finance minister, he said only 92% were um, was agreed. So in essence, we have this, in a way, traditional divide between uh, uh, member states. On one hand, we have Germany pushing for more ambition when it comes to these new fiscal rules. On the other hand, France and Italy are more cautious about having the flexibility to use public money. With that in mind, though, it's important to, to know that it does feel that the finance ministers are at the finishing line when it comes to these fiscal rules. They're expected to meet next week. We don't have a date for that meeting yet, but indeed the, the expectation is that there will there could be a compromise before the end of the month. But I had the chance, as I said, to speak to the finance minister of Germany, and he explained very clearly what's the problem at this stage and where he would like to see some further changes. Let's take a look. We uh, want to uh, maintain uh, room for manoeuvre and uh, for uh, investment uh, on new needs. Um, uh, if I think about uh, defense. Um, but uh, 
we have not yet uh, the common understanding which numbers um, are sufficient. And on the other side, I'm um, uh, worried about the corrective arm of the Stability and Growth Pact. Um, uh, some have the understanding that um, uh, under an uh, excessive deficit procedure, there could be something like a golden rule for investment. Um, our, um, or I'm convinced uh, excessive deficits uh, have to be reduced, not to be excused. And uh, so we have to differentiate between the preventive and the corrective. Now, I had the chance to see the latest proposal that the finance ministers are discussing. It is a lot more detailed than uh, what's been in place so far all of these years. So the question mark at this stage, though, once these rules are agreed, will they actually be easier to monitor? And will the question of enforcement actually be um, answered once and for all? Sylvia, thank you very much for that. We'll continue later in the program. <laughs> Also, we're going to... Hang on, hang on. Can we just take a look at Sylvia again, just very briefly? I didn't say a word to you. <laughs> you're just laughing because you couldn't even get the line out. And I, I, I love your coverage. You know you're brilliant at it. But you couldn't even get the line out without laughing. Will <laughs> the question of enforcement finally be sorted? Because that is... Because the it's must, been the block. Yes, all because of these it's years. Been a waste of time enforcement and for two decades. When I looked at this proposal, there are so many lines in there. The question is, will the European Commission once and for all actually finally implement these rules? Well, we've got to we'll <laughs> see. <laughs> yeah, well, that's two what, issues what is now. It, 15, implement the rules um, and have a, a, a proper stick with it. So 15 member states, uh, including France, Italy and Spain, have deficits above 3%, right? And 13 countries have surpassed the 60% debt to GDP ratio. Yes. So what, they're all on the naughty step pretty much? Yeah, pretty much, but the idea is to help all of these countries correcting both deficits and debts. Right. And get the debts to GDP down by a mighty, a mi what, what know, we, what a we, 5% a year, 10% a year, what are they aiming for? They're aiming for, well, if, the you're, if, you, if you're above 90%, it's one percentage point year. every year. Do we want to do, want to do this? I'm sorry, Adam. I know I've done this. Uh, I'm back. I've had a long think about this over the weekend. Here we go. Um, Greek debt to GDP. It's extremely 168.6%. Belgium, 106.4%. Uh, Italy, 149 Greece, uh, well, I've done that one. Spain, 111 So... 1% a year, that's going to really sort us out for the next crisis, isn't it? And, and listen, this is no a matter for, for laughs, really. These are no, actually very important no, no, subjects. No, this is very dark humour. Yeah, and, and, and because we just can't, with a, a straight face, say that there's been any real enforcement for, for the entire history of the euro. And it's not going to be in our lifetime at a 1% 1, 1 a year rate. Let's face it. I know, yes. I'm, I'm going to live 200. That's why we're still hearing the German finance minister saying this is not yeah. good enough and we need to be more ambitious. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.